You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, July 26th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santa Maria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. Hello. Hello. So, guys, I am still yes, at least two weeks away from having my house back in order. It's been oh six my months. God. So, wait, this what are you working been, on now? Uh, what is under construction? So, the, the cabinets are in place. We're waiting for the tops to the cabinets. Yeah. But I thought I was going to get my appliances installed today. But then there's just so much collateral damage that keeps cropping up. So they tried to reinstall our gas oven and it was leaking gas. Ah, That's scary. So now we have to get that fixed and we still don't have a working oven. And then my TiVo shit the bed. Uh Uh-oh. You use TiVo? Hold on. You still use TiVo, Steve? (laughs) TiVo's awesome. Why not? Yeah. TiVo, TiVo was awesome. Like, but the every year it came cable out. company <laughs> has their own DVR now. Yeah, but it's better. The cable company's DVRs are generally not as slick as TiVo. Yeah, you know? yeah. TiVo I, mean, really I, works I wouldn't great. know, but cable DVR is convenient and probably and cheap and stuff. But but for just a, like a full service DVR, I mean, I guess I haven't used Devo, TiVo in years. I guess it's well, it's a little bit better. Whatever, we, we like it. We live in an on-demand world, though. What do you? Uh, what's happening? Yeah, but you get all there? that. You get all that through your TiVo anyway. Now, TiVo, it's still good to be able to just say record every episode of this show and then sure, have it have it you know when you want to watch it. Yeah, I mean, I still do that with my DVR. I don't I don't always go to the on demand because then you can't like skip commercial. There's like weird stuff with on demand. Oh yeah, yeah you can't I, skip yeah. commercials. It's true. Yeah. Don't let you fast and now forward through. Yeah, you can you can do like one button, skip it, go all the way through commercials. Yeah, TiVo has that. You're right, and the DVRs don't really do that. But why would it choose this moment to break? Right? I mean. Yeah, it's well, it knows you're in construction mode. The water I know. could have damaged it, Steve. It could have had too much moisture. It could have it, damaged it. Yeah, it I don't think it wasn't it wasn't near the water though, but it was so basically there was dust, you know, a cloud of dust in my first floor for months. And plus there's these, you know, the moving guys, you know, are a little bit ham fisted, uh-huh. to be honest with you. <laughs> so who knows? Like there's just so many things. It's just, you know, the uh it's just a money pit trying to fix this house. Well, you know, the good news is it looks amazing. You know, the floors are all done. The walls are fixed and painted. The cabinets are mostly in and it looks – it's really amazing. Like when you see a, a refresh of a space that you have memorized in your head, it, it I love it, Steve, and you're going to love it. It's so fun to have a new kitchen. I know, but we're getting so close now. Like, ah, come on. Like we still <laughs> – Finish it. Get the electrician in here. I need that microwave working. You know, I, we have nothing now. Yeah, it's, it's a big tease right now. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, so that night – when I saw the studio with like rainforest type conditions, I thought it was over. I thought we were cooked. Sad. You know, now that I think about it, I want to thank our patrons for um, contributing and helping us fix things. You know, we our last goal was at 2,000 patrons, which we passed. And um, we did make some wiring updates and, and actually fixes to things that got damaged down there. So we want to thank our patrons for helping us out with that a lot. And as a matter of fact, I mean, you know, the money that – is being contributed through our Patreon has done some good improvements in the studio in other ways as well. Cause I did get some lights. You know, we have also a couple of things on the drawing board. Like Steve and I know that we need a studio computer that we're, we're working towards. Yes. Yeah, so we were, at, you know, we've been paying a lot of attention to the, uh, the goals that we set for ourselves on Patreon. And now that we have a better idea of the growth that we're getting 
and what we need to do, we're, go- we're going to be reconfiguring the goals to, to make them match more the timeline, I think, that we're on. Um, so we're going to be moving up the next goal, which is going to be when we hit 3,000 patrons. At that point, we're going to have enough support that we will be able to hire Jay full-time. Yay! Oh, my right. God! Hey, hey. So wait, where are we right now? How many we're patrons 2,200. 2,200? So we're so close. Yeah, we can we're do close. this quick. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. So that'll be great because, you know, then, you know, it's hard, it's hard keeping the ship afloat with everybody having a full-time day job. Even just mm-hmm. having one person who can, you know, do the heavy lifting logistically is going to be awesome. Big difference. Yeah. Hey, guys, yeah. help us out, yes. man. This would be so great. Yeah, I know we're going to get there. And I feel like it was a big decision. Uh, to move it from 5,000 to 3,000. But largely it's because people have been very generous and, you know, it, things are going very well. You know, the plans that we put in place are happening. So if you, um, guys, if you believe in the work that we do and you want us to keep going and you want to help us spread critical thinking as far as we can, then please become a patron. Yeah, go to patreon.com slash skeptics guide. Take a look at all of our different uh, reward levels and the different goals that we're laying out there, including our updated goals. And the other thing you could do to support the SGU is to buy our book, which is coming out October 2nd. Mm-hmm. We're still working really hard to try to get that over the finish line. We just, I think I could talk about this. Uh-huh. They, they, they pulled the trigger on the audio version of the book. That's going to be a production in and of itself. I mean, that's going to take, they were estimating seven full days in, in, a, in the studio recording to, it. Yeah. For the yeah. Wow. Yep. Oh yep. my God. That's, that's so, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot so, of talking. Still trying to figure out how that's going to happen, but that's, you know, and that's going to, they want to happen, they want to have it happen yesterday, you know? Now, Steve, I can do all of it with different accents. That's oh, no, true. Don't let Jay do that. <laughs> Jay, you could, you could do the British version of our audiobook in a Harry Potter accent. The whole I will thing. start working on that tonight. <laughs> oh my God, that would be so much fun. He's going to, He's going to send it to the publishers on spec. He's going to yeah. be like, guys, I was working on this for the last week. <laughs> and I'll, I'll just, every chapter will be in a different region. You know, I'll yeah. just try all sorts. No. I'll do one in Regency. I, oh, man, this is going to be epic. <laughs> Don't worry. This isn't really happening, but it is fun to think about. <laughs> no, but Steve, think about it. Because if I, if I get hired by the SGU full time, mm-hmm. I'll be doing it on your dime. That's true. <laughs> uh-huh. As I said, this isn't going to happen. <laughs> yeah, we're we're excited about you know everything that's coming up. We have Dragon Con in at the end of uh, August, beginning of September, and then uh, we applied to a panel at Comic Con New York. We'll yeah. see if that happens. We're, we're optimistic, but we're going to be then doing a whole bunch of events. Yeah, you know, we're doing okay. So the one I could I could mention is I'm going to be speaking for the Humanist Association in Norwalk. So this is on uh, October 8th, Monday. This is the HFFC in Norwalk, Connecticut at the Silver Star Restaurant. That's uh, 210 Connecticut Avenue. Uh, so there'll be a social from 6 to 7. I'll be talking from 7 to 8.30 or so. Then we'll be doing a book signing afterwards because this is after our book comes out. Yeah. And everyone's going to be there with me, including Kara, because Kara's <laughs> going to be on the East Coast. So Yay! If you want to get the book signed by all five of us, this is one of your few rare opportunities. But there'll be others. You know, while Kara's over here, she's going to be here for a few days before we go to the UK to QED and then Edinburgh and then London. We uh, so we'll be setting up as many events as we can. Um, we're we're setting up right now a 
talk at the um, Cambridge Skeptics. Uh, oh, boy. We'll give details. So that we're setting up a talk with the Edinburgh Skeptics. So we'll make all of these details available on our website, and we'll we'll mention them on the show when they're all ironed out. We've locked in the October 8th one in Norwalk, uh, but there will be there will be more upcoming. And at some point when all this is happening, I'm going to, I'm supposed to record the audiobook. Um, <laughs> we'll we'll see how that happens. Hey, just give up give up sleep, you'll be fine. If I become a full-time employee of the SGU, everything is going to get better. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's going to dress better, the food will be much better, global warming. <laughs> Yes, I will go out and I'll just blow cool air outside for hours. <laughs> why didn't the scientists think of that before? Exactly. This is why, you know, I am science. You know, Kara? Just think of it that <laughs> oh, way. Guys, I think it's already going to his head. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Kara, get us started with what's the word? The word this week was recommended by Gavin I, well, Stewart. Everybody knows what that means. Yes. What? The word you recommended. Said the word this week was recommended. Yeah. Oh, ha. Huh. I get it. That took me a second. And Kara, my jokes will even be better. I am so obviously tired. Was it just me? Let's make that a goal on Patreon. (laughs) This number of patrons, Jay's jokes will get better. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I'll throw that in there. (laughs) 3,200 patrons, Jay's jokes will get better. 3,200 patrons, Jay will go to clown college. Oh, my God. How long is that? 3,500 and he'll graduate. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the word this week was recommended by Gavin Stewart in Hungary, and he says that we should cover stridulation. Stridulation. I think I might have just stridulated. Is is snapping your fingers stridulation? I technically I don't think it is, but if you were to read the um, the definition. Um, incredibly concretely, you could probably argue that snapping your fingers, doing this speaking even would be stridulating. Uh Well, maybe not because stridulation is making shrill creaking noises. So I guess those things don't qualify by rubbing together special bodily structures. So you've heard crickets stridulate. Mm-hmm. Oh, the back legs. You've heard mm-hmm. grasshoppers stridulate. Exactly. I think that's one of the better examples of it. Um, usually it's an insect. Um, usually it's the legs. But there are wings that can help stridulate. There are other parts of the body. There are even some snakes stridulate. Um, and the cool thing is that stridulation happens via, what do you think? Stridulatory organs. I love that. I want to use stridulatory organ once a day. You've got to figure out how to say stridulatory organ in like your everyday speech. This would be very impressive. Organs dedicated to stridulation. Yep, exactly. So so flatulence wouldn't. It wouldn't be stridulation. No, because you do – that actually has a different purpose. It just, I think that's like the sound is a byproduct. That's a wind instrument, Bob. That's, exactly. <laughs> but so stridulation is a specifically um, – it, it's an intentional sound that is made and it's generally for – you know, some sort of purpose. Usually we would refer to it as like a chirping sound, right? Like grasshoppers and um, crickets make this chirping sound. But some beetles do it. Katydids do it. 
There's even, like I said, there's a snake uh, that like rolls itself into a C-shape coil and rubs together for a um, threat display. And then there's even a bird called a club-winged mannequin that has a dedicated stridulation apparatus. So it's different than vocalization. It's it's body parts that actually rub together and that are um, – that evolved to rub together to make that sound. The cool thing about stridulation is, uh, well, there's lots of cool things about stridulation, but one cool thing about stridulation is that it comes from a Latin term that means the same thing, giving a shrill sound or creaking, but that actually comes from an earlier Greek this is like very common. Latin words often come from earlier Greek. Stridere, to, which is to utter an inarticulate sound, to grate or to creak. And that's actually related to, can you guys think of a common word that that would be related to? To creak? To creak, to utter. Strident. Strident, yes. Mm. Isn't that cool? Yeah, Yeah. so those have the same root, um, Mm -hmm. which makes sense, right? But it's something that you don't really put together, I think, because of the way that the word is pronounced. Stridulation. It's a good one. Yeah. I I I feel like we... We'll figure out how to use that in our in our everyday discourse. Send me your examples, people. Oh, boy. All right, Bob. Th- I think the big science news this week was the discovery of water, probable water on Mars. Tell us about it. Uh, so Dude, cool. Yeah, this fascinating story here. Um, yeah, this definitely was like I read this and like, yeah, we definitely have to talk about this. I'll take it. <laughs> so uh, Italian researchers in the U.S. Journal of Science claim for the first time of of evidence for a huge underground lake on Mars. Underground lake. That's pretty amazing. Um, the lake itself is uh, 12 miles or 20 kilometers wide. Very, very big. It's the largest body of water ever found on Mars. Enrico uh, Flamini, uh, uh, the Mars Ex- Express mission manager, told the press conference, Water is there. We have no more doubt. Uh, he sounds incredibly certain. Um, Associate Professor Alan Duffy at Swinburne University in Australia said, this is a stunning result that suggests water on Mars is not a temporary trickle like previous discoveries, but a persistent body of water that provides the conditions for life for extended periods of time. Wait, is that our Alan Duffy? That's Alan Duffy from the Australian Skeptics. Of course. Who she was... Yeah. I think there's only one Alan Duffy in all of Australia. Um, <laughs> well, one physicist named Alan <laughs> yeah, Duffy. That's, that, <laughs> that's yeah, that, awesome. shrinks it, that shrinks it down a lot. <laughs> so, but that's actually a good point because we, we've, uh, we've accepted on Mars for years, right? That, that there, yeah, there's water on Mars. You know, there's always been some kind of short-lived water uh, phenomena yeah. like in the atmosphere or sequestered away in places like, like the polar caps. Blue skies on Mars. Well, didn't but we always thought it was ancient, right? Like we would see evidence that it used yeah, to be remnants. There. Well, uh, well, then, that's, but then that's it, a separate issue. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, again, gotcha. but then again, even recently, and I think in the past year, they saw evidence of of water flowing that had flown down craters um, uh, then, seasonally, seasonally, like recently. Oh, I see. Right, I see. But it was a very small amount, so it was kind of ephemeral and. Uh, but nothing like this. Nothing like this. It's, 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 I mean, 20 miles, persistent water. Not sure how deep it is, but it's incredibly, in, incredibly wide. Uh, but of course, there's a downside. Uh, this is not very nice water. <laughs> it's a, first off, it's about a, it's like a one and a half kilometers under the ground. So you have to dig pretty that, damn deep. That's a long to get, straw. To get to this. So it's deep. That's really it's, deep. It's deep. And it's also cold and briny as hell. It's oh, actually, briny. it's actually below the freezing point. I mean, and that, but that's for fresh water. Yeah. 
Yeah, it doesn't break the uh. laws of physics. Uh, well, not really. It's uh, because it contains dissolved Mars salts and minerals. Sure. Like magnesium, calcium, and sodium. So that's the theory of why the water can get so damn cold is because of those dissolved salts. But isn't salts. that good for life? No, not when it's that damn briny. I mean, damn. Oh, it's really? Like, it's like too it's, salty? Right. It's too salty. It's actually uh, – it, they think that it might be so salty that it probably uh, would be fatal for any microbial life. Similar, Even ex- you know, extremophiles? To, to what's on the earth. My take here on this is that this is like crazy salty, like like mm. really – I mean in order – because it doesn't make any sense for the, wa- the water to be in a liquid state down there because first off, you don't have a lot of ice pressing down on the, the liquid to lower, you know, you increase the pressure, it's going to lower the, uh, it's going to lower the melting point. And there's no geothermal activity going on to heat it up. That's what happens on the earth. On Mars, that's not going to happen. So how is this stuff liquid? Um, and they think it's got to be super salty in order for it to be, to be liquid. So that's, but that's the primary hope, right? We're talking about life. Everyone's thinking about life on Mars now, and that's the primary hope. I mean, this water could be very helpful for human consumption when when we have colonists Ugh. on on Mars for agriculture. <laughs> it's gonna be it's gonna be great. You like pickle well, juice Bob, for water? Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, well, the thing the is, we are, both ice caps are water ice, so we already know that there's a ton of ice on Mars, right? So that this it really doesn't yeah, for if you're, if you're talking about just a human colony, there's ice. There's, there's already water ice there. It doesn't matter. So the the fact that there's some deep briny water isn't probably not helpful. I'd really, yeah, it might be I'd easier rather, to melt ice. Yeah, it's easier to, like, to melt ice dig. at the surface. Yeah. Yeah. No, but no, but it also depends. The other the other fact here that that you're missing is that this is this is not the southern pole of Mars is not a special place. They think that th- there could be similar underground water, subsurface water all over Mars, and that will make uh, a difference. If you're yes, on the equator, yes, you true. don't want to go to the poles. So this could be big for, for a oh, lot so of that stuff. so we could have stuff. like Martian could, wells. Right. Yeah. yeah, maybe there's something only 100 cool. meters below the surface. I think I wanted to mention the uh, the instrumentation that discovered this. It was really an interesting story. This is um, a special radar instrument on the Mars Express orbiter. It's called MARSIS. This is Mars Advanced Radar for Subsurface and Ionosphere Sounding. Marsis. So what they did was they 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 took a they did a lot of orbital passes of this and they they had to do some tweaking. But after after twenty nine orbits over six years, Jeez. they finally had the data that they needed. And what I really liked, like all competent scientists, they worked hard to rule out other explanations for Falsify what the radar it. was telling them. It could have been like deep layers of carbon dioxide ice or these other things. They and of course they they took that seriously and tried to say, all right, how can we prove that it's not that it's not that? And they they kind of did. But even though there's all that, there is still is some skepticism with this. So don't get your hopes up too much. Some of this doesn't kind of make a lot of sense. Jeffrey Plout, uh, who's on the Mars's team, said, I would say the interpretation is plausible, but it's not quite a slam dunk yet. So that's, that's, that's what he's saying. Another guy here, we got a geophysicist, Dave Stillman. And the, one of the bigger problems, though, is the fact that they've used higher frequency radar instruments on board the Mars reconnaissance reconnaissance orbiter and they that instrument cannot detect underground water uh which is kind of bizarre geophysicist david stillman said it's strange that sherrod is is the uh the uh, instrument cannot confirm this discovery in fact sherrod cannot penetrate through the ice here and no one understands why it can't this suggests that something strange is going on here. Thus, I'm skeptical about this discovery. So on, on the one hand, we've got some very interesting uh, uh, and thorough results that say there is solid evidence, but other evidence is saying that eh, something weird's going on here. It needs a little bit more work uh, to be uh, to be a slam dunk. 
Um, so we'll have to wait for probably other spacecraft and other instrumentation uh, to confirm this theory. But it but it is promising. Uh, but we'll have to see in in the future. I'm not sure how far it maybe could be a couple years or more before this is uh, is a sl- in, indeed a slam dunk. I mean, I think we need to just send missions to Mars that, whose purpose is to drill down to this possible water to see what it is and and obviously look for life if it, if it is there. Well, I, must, I don't know. That might be pre- premature. I mean, drilling down um, a kilometer and a half, not easy, for, especially for a, a system that you're sending so far away from the Earth with no with no humans around. I would think, uh, let's definitively, might not be that let's low. definitively nail this before we do something Europa, like Europa Europa's, uh, has 19 to 25 kilometers thick ice. Yikes. That's going to be a lot harder. But they're not going to drill. That's why They're I wouldn't go drill. there either. I'd go to Enceladus, Enceladus. where the damn yeah, stuff is erupting onto the surface or in space. It's erupting from Europa too. There are plumes on Europa. That's the plan. Like they can't drill. They're never going to get approval for that. You can't get a well, permit. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> no, from NASA. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> drill, baby, drill. <laughs> yeah, I definitely I heard go, that somewhere. Go to the eruptions first. I mean, imagine a yeah, probe exactly. in space. Flying by and grabbing some and grabbing some evidence, holding a bucket the out there and capturing it. Oh, it'd be so cool! Look, microbes. So here's something interesting I didn't know about Mars that I learned when I was doing background research for this piece, is that both the north and southern ice caps are mostly water ice, but the southern ice cap has a permanent layer of carbon dioxide ice, while the northern ice cap has only a seasonal cover of carbon dioxide ice. That's interesting. Yeah, so in the in the northern hemisphere summer on Mars, all of the carbon dioxide ice sublimates and you're left with just water ice. Whereas in the southern hemisphere, the carbon dioxide layer is thicker. It's like eight feet thick or something, and it's permanent. Yeah, but even geographically, there's some, there's some very interesting differences between the northern and southern hemisphere. Yeah, the northern and southern hemispheres of Mars are very different, if you recall. Their geology is very, yeah. very different. Yeah. And the magnetic field week, though it is, is mostly the southern hemisphere, I believe. They're you know, regional, yeah. It's not. It's pathetic. Like it's, like weak, it's beyond weak and spotty. They call it marsulation when you walk on the surface of Mars. <laughs> That's good. I like that. Marsulation. All right, guys, you are all familiar with the Drake equation, right? Oh, yes. sure. Yes. I love the Drake equation. I, I love Drake's yeah. cakes. Drake's cakes. Can, can, right. anyone, <laughs> can anyone recite the Drake equation from oh, memory? Oh, gosh. Absolutely from not. Yeah. No. No. Uh, it's like 12 components to it. Uh, it's not that many. So the Drake equation is just a way of calculating the probability or the density of galactic civilizations out there who might be willing to communicate with us, right? Yeah. Yes. The it, it is the average rate of star formation in our galaxy times the fraction of those stars that have planets times the average number of planets that could potentially support life per star that has planets times the fraction of planets that could support life that actually develop it at some point, the fraction of planets with life that they go on to develop intelligent life, the fraction of, of civilizations that develop a technology that release detectable signals of their existence into space, and the at times the length of time for which such civilizations release detectable signals into space. Of course, we don't know any of those numbers, and the uncertainty increases exponentially with each unknown or with each uncertain variable. And you also so, have to factor in some technologies may have destroyed themselves in the process. Well, that's the length of time, Evan. That's that's mm, taken gotcha. into consideration. So, so what's, the, what's the deal? Are they revamping it? No, but a, a study from Oxford researchers did some more analysis 
And they were essentially correcting the math of the equation, meaning that mm. they're essentially doing a statistical analysis and showing that not only is the uncertainty a lot greater than most people assume, <laughs> but that the way the math works out, the probability of there being no life outside Earth is actually a lot greater than you think. So you know they, they didn't prove that we're alone in the universe, even though that was some of the headlines. It was more that even if you know you think that there's a 50-50 chance of having one civilization per galaxy or whatever, that still results in a pretty high chance of us be al being alone in the universe mm -hmm. um, just because of the way the, the statistics works out. What? That's bullshit. So, yeah, they're saying that the uncertainty includes – that possibility, you know, so if you, you could run the numbers so that the number of civilizations in the universe is one, that's us, or that there are trillions, right? Depending on what numbers you plug in. Yep. And right. yeah, and their point is, yeah, it's probably towards the lower end. And if you do the probability curve, there's a significant chance that it's one, right? That we're alone. Um, that, that was their point. So wow, that's a bummer. How, how, don't yeah. worry. Don't worry, Kara. Baloney. <laughs> Baloney. Yeah. So, and they say this this could be the solution to the Fermi paradox, right? So Fermi, yeah, said if if there are aliens out there, where are they? Even if it takes a hundred million are, years, yeah. yeah, to populate the galaxy, you know, why hasn't that happened already? You know, the gal our galaxy is thirteen billion years old. So where where are they all? Uh, and it, that requires an answer. We have to figure out. You know, if if there's if the answer to the Drake equation is somewhere in the middle of the of the range of possibilities, then Fermi's paradox is paradoxical, right? It's, it's a real question. Where yes, why haven't is. we detected any aliens so far? Not that there aren't plausible answers, but we have to you know speculate what they might be. Whereas if the Oxford guys are right, it's like yeah, that yeah, there's probably no one out there, and that's why there's the Fermi paradox is what it is. That would oh, be so, so sad. I know. Like, I want to have a funeral for all the other civilizations. Doesn't mean that we never have existed. to stop looking, though. No, of course not. That's no, not this is all theoretical, and looking is empirical, and that's what we need. We need yeah. to, to yeah, absolutely, we need to look. But aren't you? Is is you're also saying though? In a way, it's like you know we're safer because a lot of people have said that it's a threat. You know, alien species are definitely a threat. Uh, that's, a, that's a negative. That is well, definitely right. not an existential threat I think about often. <laughs> it certainly would be safer if there were no other aliens out there that could be competitive or hostile to us. Uh, I think the answer to the Fermi paradox is because space is big. But isn't that in the Drake equation? No, but I mean that it's really hard to get from one you know, stellar system right. to another. No, and no matter how advanced your technology gets, it never gets easy. And even if it's theoretically possible, it's a massive resource commitment. And why would any civilization make it? There just may be no compelling reason to expend the massive resources necessary to to spread out too far beyond your local group of stars. Yeah, but th but don't forget there's also the idea of the von Neumann, von Neumann machines that can go out and uh, – and uh, harvest other other planetary bodies and other solar systems, and use those resources, and that and that even over the course of a couple hundred million years, they could pretty much swamp an entire galaxy. So why come we're not seeing them? Because so, so nobody because nobody did it. Why would they do that? Right. Why would, just because you can. I mean, just the just the idea <laughs> that you could. Yeah, that we, you could go we out. We do stuff all the time yeah. just because we can. Smart. Yeah. Yeah, but but there are reasons not to do that. 
It's not a gargantuan investment. But Steve, I can't. I don't disagree with that. My my angle, my input on this is that that I think uh, a lot of civilizations turn inward and they just all live these. Uh, these digital lives yeah, and, uh, and they, you know, and they may send out some probes and then the probes come back with information, however many years, generations later. And then you could update your database of information about what the universe is like. But I think, I think a lot of societies are living in their just uh, home built worlds and universes and, and living that way. And I also think that the psychology of an alien species is likely unfathomable. Right. To us. Right. I agree that, with that oh, too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. so we're thinking about these things from such an anthropogenic or anthropomorphic, sorry, point of view. No, That's anthropogenic. All we can do, gosh. <laughs> anthropocentric. Jesus. I know. Gosh. Suffixes. Come on. Come on. But yes, Jeez. we're thinking of this from such a human perspective that it's almost, yeah. It's it's the unknown unknowns. It's just very yeah, difficult. But but we cannot rule out the possibility that evolving intelligence is rare and evolving technology is more rare and surviving oh, a long surviving time it, may yeah. be really rare. Oh, we cannot so rule that out. We we you know human civilization may be really precious. It might be incredibly rare in the universe. Well, it is precious. I mean, regardless, regardless it's precious. Yeah. Yeah. I know, but even more so if you think that we're it, like we're the universe's mm-hmm. expression of consciousness. Oh my gosh, we are it. Ooh. Well, that's a, Sagan that's a, did say we are a way for the cosmos to know itself. I know, we're but the he didn't say way. we're the only way for the cosmos to no, know. No, but itself. he said we are the way because for all intents and purposes, as far as we know, we are. Yeah, the he way. did say right. someone, someone's got to be first. Maybe it's us. Mm-hmm. You never know. But there was also another study on the other, on the flip side. Astronomers said, you know that moons of gas giants, yes, may, may be a more likely. A place to look for for alien life than planets. What we need to do is go in search of these moons, right, Evan? We do in search of these moons, in search of we sh- we should go in search of an alien life, alien life, you. in search yeah. of alien signals, in search of, in fact, yes, guys. There's a theme this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's sort we of. We don't usually have like a whole themed show. Well, it's not our fault. All this news happened all at the same, <laughs> at the same time. In Search Of. Do you guys remember the show In Search Of? Yeah, of course. I don't. I'm sorry. The late 70s and the early 80s before Kara was born? I was born in the early 80s. Leonard Nimoy, the original Spock himself, hosted the popular weekly television show. And it was popular. I even remember watching it as a kid. And I know that you guys were as well, not Kara. We were uh, rather (laughs) impressed at the time, if I recall. We loved it. But despite the show's coy attempts at offering possible alternative explanations to seemingly strange events and phenomena, In Search Of was, in fact, uh, when it came down to it, pseudoscientific, anti-scientific, and lacked critical thinking and logic that the sci-fi character Spock was supposed to represent, right? Or at least the Vulcan half of him. I mean, it was horrible. I mean, I've gone back and watched <laughs> watched episodes you know, in the last 10 years or whatever. And I was shocked at how terrible it was. It was <laughs> c- complete hand-waving speculation. It's like, here's a picture of a guy. Could this be the ancient astronauts? But I was just like, where is that <laughs> coming from? There was no connection, no logic, no evidence. It was just rampant speculation that he pulled out of his ass. It was shocking how horrible it was. Yeah, yep. But popular nonetheless, despite that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, definitely a contradiction to to the character that we all 
you know, love yeah. that he played on Star Trek, yeah. certainly. So here we are in 2018, and once again, Spock is lying to us. Yeah. <laughs> this time, it's the actor Zachary Quinto, best known for his portrayal of Spock on this decade's relaunch of the Star Trek movie series. He is now hosting the latest reboot of the show In Search Of, which can be seen mm. quite appropriately on the History Channel. And thank goodness it's not on the Science Channel. The first episode of which debuted just a few nights ago, July 20th. In the pilot episode, Zachary went in search of aliens. Space aliens, mm -hmm. extraterrestrials, intelligent life beyond Earth. So he set out to discover whether aliens exist and what evidence we have to prove it. He met with several people who say they have encountered extraterrestrial life, including a man who has been uh, claims to be abducted by aliens several times since childhood, and another man who claims to have extracted an alien implant. Oh, and there's a woman who shows Zach what it feels like to be abducted into a spacecraft. Yep. However, at the same time, in, this, in the one-hour show, Zach also meets with the world's leading scientists at SETI in Greenbanks, West Virginia. And there, they use the world's largest telescope and show them the methods that they use to try to detect signals coming from the deep reaches of space. A mixed bag of legitimate science with paranormal and pseudoscience mixed in. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's sharp looking. It's clean. It's modern. has all the production quality you would expect of a good science channel show. And I think Zachary delivers the role of legitimately curious host because he makes it sort of his personal adventure instead of just a narration. So that's kind of good in that he's active in the interviews and the scenarios. And that's different from what Leonard Nimoy had done in which he was really just sort of narrating in the show back in the 70s. So this version is more uh, personable. Unfortunately, though, because these things are actually kind of good, that, that's actually bad. When you realize that this type of approach helps lend some legitimacy to that which is purely mm -hmm. pseudoscientific. It gives equivalency and then some where actually distinction, I think, is sorely needed. And that moves us into sort of the bad things that came out of the show, and there was plenty of it. So the bad, even when the conclusions reached ultimately turned out to be nothing burgers, such as the alien abduction and pulling implants out of people. It's the buildup, the anticipation. They use these, you know, dramatic edits and the background music and the professional actors' expressions. You know, it, it rings hollow. It's that formulaic, typical buildup when nothing actually happens in the in the final say. It's like those ghost hunting shows. Almost all of them have that feel to it. You know, the build up, build up, build up, and well, nothing, yeah, nothing maybe, happens. But maybe but... next time. But maybe next time. What was that noise? And right off the bat, in case number one, this is this is the first one they start off with, and they totally fumble this ball. This guy claims to be uh, have been abducted by aliens and also experienced many alien sightings. And in order to test the legitimacy of his claims of alien abduction, guess what they hook him up to? What? A, a, po and, and, a polygraph. And, and, yes, yeah. of polygraph. course. I was going to say an e-meter, so that's better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, now, they cleverly have Zachary narrate a single line in there about how polygraphs are not purely scientific, right? They kind of throw that in as the disclaimer in a sense, but then they go ahead and they take the test and they treat it as if the results are scientific. Yeah. So the machine says or rather the interpreter of what the machine says, has deemed that the abductee fails his test, is not being truthful about it. But what are we supposed to deduce by this? It's crazy. It's an ugly, messy failure. And that's just the first freaking 12 minutes of the show. The tragedy is, I think that this is a real opportunity, and they could have done a show like that 
And I think it probably would have been more popular, in my opinion. I think that the the public is thirsting for some real analysis, evidence. You know, let's show what it really shows, right? What's the real evidence? What can we right. really say about this? And not the fluff. I think people are getting a little tired and sort of savvy to the fluff like this because, as you say, it is formulaic. I mean, we've done the reality TV show you know, ghost hunting shows or Bigfoot hunting shows to death where nothing actually ever happens. You know, the, as you say, the big nothing burgers, come on, how about showing some real science? And you can definitely, you can do it on these topics, but just do it with some real hardcore analysis. Um, but they went, they always end up going with the fluff. You know, every time like skeptics try to do shows like this, it never gets to all the way, you know, to the, to the end because they they think that like the audience isn't savvy enough. Pro- producers are risk averse. Yeah, they mm-hmm. and they they think that oh you got to give like the cheap thrill and that's the only thing that's going to sell. That's right. You can't get can't get too sciencey. But and then me and and they they continue to believe this despite the fact that you know the runaway hit shows are all intelligent, scientific, high quality. Yeah, you know I would say I mean? don't even blame the producers. Because there are people pitching good shows all the time. They're always getting shot down by the networks. It's yeah. the network executives. Sure. Yeah. There's well, this that's what real, I mean. That's what I mean. Yeah. There's this real thing, you know, this real concern that we want to give people what they want and the market research shows us that they want this. And it's like, well, they're only watching that because that's the only choice you give them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also maybe there is sort of an ethic that everybody's ignoring. <laughs> like maybe yeah. the, maybe it should be the ethical decision to provide quality, entertaining, beautiful, high production value programming that also happens to be legitimate. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and they do it. They can find it. Of this course they can. It, it's all but- <laughs> out there. We pitch them constantly. And then they say, yeah, but what if we do it where there's aliens? And you're like, wait, what? <sighs> Like I told you about that time when I pitched my dinosaur show Mm -hmm. and I was working with this production company and they preemptively were like, well, when we take this to network whose name I'm redacting, they're going to say, but what about if we do an episode that's like, are there still dinosaurs living in the Amazon? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, we just spent months on this like science heavy paleontology show. And that's what. Oh, it's so it's so frustrating. (laughs) The other thing is, I don't buy the we're just giving people what they want. The fact is, people people actually don't know what they want until they see it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's true. Uh, Like we think paradox of choice. Yeah, all the all the breakaway shows. Nobody would have said that's what they wanted. You know, but but it's became really popular because once people saw it, they go, "Wow, this is great." But what this also shows, the final comment before we move on, is that you know this is all classic. Skeptical topics that they're going to be dealing with: Atlantis, UFOs, Bigfoot, right? Thomas Loch Ness monster, to death yeah. on television. By the way, our job is not done. We're going to have to revisit oh, no. all of these topics. Mm-hmm. You know, nope they are they are unsinkable rubber duckies. They pop back up. Yeah, they fade away for a generation, then they come on back, and we just got to be ready to knock them down when they do. But it keeps sucking it's so me frustrating back in. because they're not providing <laughs> any new evidence. So all we have to do is just like go back through the files and be like, yeah. how did we debunk that the last 30 times? Yeah. Right. And that's the frustrating part. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus. We Guys, love The Great Courses Plus. We love don't it. We, don't we, Jay? 
We love it. <laughs> I like it intensely. Love- the Great Courses Plus, we learn from award-winning experts about topics that are fascinating to us and not just science. We are not a one-trick pony. We love to use the Great Courses Plus because we can learn about what are some of your favorite topics. Steve, you love photography. Yeah, I, I watched their photography course. It was really good. Yeah, there's cooking, there's philosophy, there's psychology. There's so many things that you can learn about and you can stream them from your TV, your laptop, your tablet and use the Great Courses Plus app, which means not only can you watch these video lectures, but you can use them like podcasts, listening to the audio throughout the day or even downloading to watch or listen offline. So guys, we're recommending this time around the course Dark Matter, Dark Energy, the Dark Side of the Universe presented by Dr. Sean Carroll. Sean, Sean Carroll. Carroll, who yeah. is probably, <laughs> now that Hawking's dead, he's like one of my, he is my favorite <laughs> physics author. This guy, I just, <laughs> finished, <laughs> I just finished. Favorite living. Yes, finished favorite living. <laughs> Sean Carroll presents the meatiest science you will find. It's just so rewarding to understand the things that he's saying because they're complex, but he makes them simple. And he's going to be on our show in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're going to be chatting about all sorts of things, including his new podcast. Oh, Yay. Nice. But you should listen to him now. Go get your free trial with unlimited access. Watch and listen to the entire Great Courses Plus library. But you must sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. Don't forget, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics to sign up for your free trial right now. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Okay, Jay, I understand that scientists have discovered that people can suck energy from other people, except that they haven't. This is complete nonsense. Tell us what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the uh, let's just start off with a baseline so we're on the same page. You like that, Evan? <laughs> I love it. The, He's like, he can't catch his breath. I love it. <laughs> the, uh, the typical way that plants get energy is through a process called photosynthesis. And this this is a process where green plants use light, you know, the sunlight to synthesize their food from carbon dioxide and water, right? So oxygen, of course, is the byproduct. That's, you know, and there's a lot of ins and outs, you know, there's some, but I'm just generalizing. Researchers at Bielefeld University in Germany from Professor Dr. Olaf Cruz's team uh, back in November, discovered that plants have an alternate way of getting food, certain plants. It's actually the green algae, Shamalama ding dong. This is Shlamydomonas. <laughs> oh, God. C H L A M Y D O M O N A S. Chlamydomonas. Chlamydomonas reinhardtii. Just call it clammy. Just call it clammy. Okay, so, this green algae, specific one. <laughs> yes. It's a specific algae, it's single celled. And along with using photosynthesis, it can actually draw food from other plants. And this was made public in the in a journal called Nature Communications. In this particular plant, or in this algae, when photosynthesis is not supplying enough food, mm-hmm. the algae secretes an enzyme that can digest cellulose, which would break it down into these smaller sugar components. And, and then they would it would move that, whatever was left over, it would move it into the cell and it would turn it into energy. And, you know, that's like eating. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's, it that's eats what, the other – it's not like eating. It is eating. Yeah, it eats the – It's eating. Yeah, it digests the cellulose in another plant and uses that for, for yeah. raw material and energy. Absolutely. It, it's not it, – it, it might be novel, but it's not crazy. It's, I mean it's, it's – It's also not novel. Maybe this particular enzyme is. Maybe that's – and I think that's the discovery. This particular 
algae makes this particular enzyme. But this is just a hemiparasite. That's it. Oh, there are yep. there are plants that are parasites. That are there are plants that are obligate parasites. They get all their energy from other plants. This that yeah. is not new. So that's like science reporting error number one. This is not new. But check this out. So this actual news item was transformed into the following headline. Now, Kara, yes. are you sitting? I yes, I am. Are you feeling okay? Because this one, what I'm about to tell you, is going to knock you out. I love this. Oh, careful. Knock me out. This is what the pseudoscientists do with this is I wouldn't say this is a mundane news item, but you know, there, yes, there's something Yes, it's a mundane news item. It's mundane, it's interesting. <laughs> it was it was it was fun to read about, but they take this and they turn it into here's the headline. Yeah. Scientists confirm that people are capable of absorbing energy from others. <laughs> what? Yep. The what? author of the article that wrote the headline, who is only named Jasmine, Right out of the what? gates. Her yes. byline is just Jasmine. Jasmine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. She says, but "What? Where was this published?" Runwonder.com. Yeah, runwonder.com. Yeah, it's a swanky uh, website that you. But you know, you'd find this link on Facebook. You know, but but we're, that's we're the thing. Yeah, it. it makes the rounds, though, right? It doesn't matter how crappily sourced it is; it's making the that rounds. Sucks. That's true. Well, good old so, Jasmine. Yeah. <laughs> sentence number two. They say that this discovery and I quote, could also have a major impact on the future of bioenergy, eventually providing the evidence to show that people draw energy from others in much the same way. As no, like, actually, parasitic what? plants. Yeah, actually, the way that they they think that people draw energy from other people has nothing to do with this. It, it is nothing like the process. Jay, that we, we, we don't secrete before. enzymes and digest other people? No. <laughs> Maybe you don't. That's what I was going to so, say. I mean, technically, we probably could draw energy sure from Sure, we could. People. Yeah, we yeah. could. We were hungry. Everyone enough. boils down eventually. <laughs> so, so this article is riddled with the typical over-the-top imagery that we see online. You guys know what I'm talking about. One uh, image has like lightning, molt, lightning bolts passing between two disembodied heads where there's like a ghost <laughs> image of the brains. Um, <laughs> the brains. So, <laughs> so here's a quote from Dr. Olivia Batterley regarding the research. Mm-hmm. Again, prepare yourself. Flowers need water and light to grow, and people are no different. Our physical bodies are like sponges soaking up the environment. This is exactly why there are certain people who feel uncomfortable in specific group settings where there is a mix of energy and emotions. You could also say that those people might have, you know, social anxiety. Yeah, you might just say that that has to do with their psychology. Yeah. She called me a sponge. So when energy Evan, uh, Evan, I can't deal with your negative energy right now. More quotes. This is fun. <laughs> I, I loved reading this BS article. It was so entertaining. <laughs> when energy studies become more advanced in the coming years, we will eventually see this translated to human beings as well, stated Batterly. Uh-huh. The human organism is very much like a plant. It draws needed energy to feed emotional states, and this can essentially energize cells or cause increases in cortisol and catabolize cells depending on the emotional trigger. That's um, just a mishmash. That's yeah, you know, here. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is this is a, the formula, it's right? Chopra esque. It is. So they, they, this is very typical for pseudoscientists, where they're always trying to prematurely declare victory, right? Yeah. So they're trying to just take this short path or this like one knockout punch that proves that they're right, but they settle on. Anything that they can somehow twist into, you know, proving that they're right. So this is an example of is inappropriately extrapolating 
from something very specific to a broad general claim. And then you go from mm-hmm. that broad general claim back down to a different specific claim. But like, but it's passing through this stage where there's no detail, there's no specificity, there's no logical coherence. So in this specific case, they say, so an algae can secrete an enzyme in order to digest the cellulose in the plant to use as an alternate food source. Therefore, this is evidence that one organism can feed off the energy of another organism, right? They sort of translate it into vague yeah. terms. Energy, right? Which, and therefore, hum, this is like humans feeding off the energy of other, of their environment or other humans. But they just change the way they're using the word energy, right? But let, let, look at the bridge that they build, like Steve's describing, like they're bridging this thing that happened in science with a, a, an idea that's completely nonsense. Yeah. Let's, let's just talk about what they're saying, what, what these people believe. They're, they are saying that the human mind or the human body can f- sense and receive energy from other creatures. So we would have to yeah, have could light, would, sound, you know, absolutely. But, but we would have to have transmission organs mm-hmm. and yeah, receiving our voice, organs. our ears, our eyes, receptors. Yeah. Right, but Steve, I'm saying what they're saying. You're no, I understand. I, but yeah, but the thing is, the point is, they translate it in just vague hand waving uses of terms like energy that don't mean anything specific, and then they get it confused. Right. So then they use like specific applications of energy. Like, yeah, we actually do get energy from our environment. You know, we can, I can send signals to you that you would understand. It's called talking, you know, but then, then they, because they're using very non-specific terms incorrectly, you know, like energy, then they, they, they think that they can therefore extrapolate from that to anything that they want, right? Therefore, chakras are real and, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's so frustrating. Deepak Chopra does this with yep. quantum. This is, we talked about quantum rule recently and many times on the show. It's the same exact thing where they say these quantum particles are entangled. Therefore, everything is entangled and mm-hmm. therefore ESP is real. But mm. they, alter the definition of what it means to be entangled in that transition by just inappropriately generalizing it as if it's a general rule of the universe from this one specific special case, you know? Yeah. It's also such a lazy and like, I don't know, I I get so annoyed because I'm super interested in, I meditate a lot and I do a lot of yoga and like, there's a lot of woo in those areas, but there doesn't have to be because- these things can be kept really separate. Like, I feel like good yoga instructors will talk about bringing, you know, feeling the warmth in your feet or bringing things up to certain parts of your body, like focusing on certain. And they're all visualization techniques. Mm-hmm. It's not meant to be some sort of like scientifically rigorous right. explanation for what's actually happening Heat in your energy foot physiology. Transfer, right. Exactly. Like, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a way to like calm down and a way to like, what do they call it? Body scan, like the relaxing thing where you yeah. go part by part of your body in order to like relax and fall asleep it, it works but they're not actually talking about the real like chakra energy coming out of your knee that's it's, that's like, what infuriating. Like, i don't care if people <laughs> meditate or do yoga or do whatever it, that you do to feel good or to relax or yeah. to exercise well or stretch fine it's all good yeah but it's when they then generalize to Ugh. this 
you know, metaphysical description of reality from that. That's when that's, you know, it's gratuitous. It's unnecessary. It's insanity. Uh, and it's silly. It's and it abuses insanity. science. Yeah, it abuses science. Like the, the, the author of this article has no idea how science or logic works. You know? <laughs> nope. You know, the, my frustration is, you know, these people are trying to use they're, – they're, they're bastardizing science and all the hard work that people do. And they're just, you know, plucking – colors out of it and saying, you know, look, this lights up what we believe over here. You know, obviously it's not doing that. I would just love, you know, that's why talking to Britt Hermes was such a pleasure because she really gave us an idea of what it was like on the other side. She's the best. Yeah. And seeing her like come full circle is the dream. It's what we live to do as skeptics. We want people to to wake up. You know, those people are sadly just lost. Well, the the other thing here is that while this is an extreme example that it's kind of fun to to poke holes in, but the general principle applies across the spectrum. And the the lesson here is that you have to carefully define your terms. And when you loosely define terms and then substitute your loose definition for a scientific treatment, that's when you get into trouble. And of course, there are there are very subtle manifestations of this and that's why people who like actually are experts in a field they get down into the jargon you know because like mm-hmm. you can't just talk about depression as if it's this one thing for just to pick a random example like there's different and you can't talk about energy that yeah way. you can't talk about energy <laughs> as if it's this one thing or or you know what i mean so like, there's nothing wrong with walking into a room and being like "Ooh, there's some negative energy in here yeah, it's like, a metaphor that's a it's description a it's a metaphor yeah, right. but like actually thinking that there's thing. a exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly what scientific <laughs> instrument you're going to use to measure the energy of the room <laughs> You'll the use a scale. You're Just use off. a scale, right, Evan? Like in that last study, <laughs> study we talked yeah. about a few weeks ago. All right, Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Last week I played this noisy. <laughs> what Whatever is it? it is, I really want to help it. <laughs> no, that does have a pathetic sound to it, <laughs> it's so doesn't it? so sad. This is a hard one. I admit it. Nobody got it right. <laughs> but I love those sounds that could be interpreted many different ways. So we got a guess uh, from Janet Harvey, and she said, I have been listening to the SGU for a couple of years, a couple, three years, and uh, she's only um, gotten one or you know, a handful of these, who's that noise, he's right. She thinks this noisy are slot cars racing. Ooh. No. So my brothers and I used to race them all the time when I was growing up, and my son had a track in his preteen years as well. Yeah. Um, it does. Uh, sure. A little bit. A little bit I there. I don't know what those sound. What's a slot car? Um, oh, uh, huh? You got to really? look it up. Yeah, you got to look it up. box car it's, is. It's a toy it's, with a it, plastic yeah, track, and they race around the track on the on a with yeah, con- you, with a metal contact in the center of the car, that's how you it gets control power. with the trigger. You control how much juice the car engine uh, gets. Just yeah, a I know what those are. Motor. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen those. Those are cute. Phew. Oh, and they gosh. can like they make you can like they have loops sometimes, right? Sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. yeah. So I got another guess here from uh, a 15 year old listener named Ramable. 15. Ramable. I think the noise is a swarm of drones <laughs> because you can hear some individual changes in pitch that stand out from the main stream of noise. It's a good guess. It's not correct, but you are correct. It is several noises happening at the same time. Oh, okay. Uh, this is a weird one. 
So Dave Weldon sent me an actual sound that he recorded in his backyard. It's it's a drip irrigator. Do you guys know what this is? Yeah, yeah. it's a drip irrigator. Right. It's yeah, exactly. <laughs> um so every 18 inches there's little water dripper embed like these little holes that are in the drip line and these dribbles of water come out so you turn on the water and it will it's like it's like a, a hose with a lot of holes in it, like tiny little holes that lets water drip, good for you know, gardening. Dribble out. Yes. Yeah, it's good for – and it's also good for like uh, reducing water usage. It's better than a sprinkler because yes. those holes are usually made exactly where the roots of the plant are. Yeah. So it was a really fun, unexpected noise coming out of something that's relatively mundane. So uh, nobody won. Dave, thank you very much. We haven't done a, uh, a noisy in quite a while because we were at Nexus and had a whole bunch of stuff going on. I have a new noisy this week. New noisy. This, this noisy – Steve, are you paying attention? Jay, what's your noisy this week? This noisy this week <laughs> is sent in by a listener named James Truitt. A couple of times a year, I allow myself to just do something crazy with, with who's that noisy. I love this noisy, and it's crazy. <laughs> Prepare yourself. All right. All right, so what the hell is that? So you guys have a rough week trying to figure out that one. Um, it's painful. I absolutely love this, and you're going to love what it is. I know a lot of people out there will probably know it. Send in the emails. Take your best guess. I want Steve to know this. Steve? Yeah. I like funny sounds, okay? I hear you. That's my baseline. All-time favorite. One of my absolute favorite noises is what? What's your favorite, Ev? Oh, it's the, uh, it's the, what do you call it? Uh, la, la, la. La, 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 la. la. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to call it. It's the la, la, That one dog. has definitely the most, I think it is called the la, la, talk. <laughs> that one has the most staying power. Well, you we also throw back to that one. We love the, uh, who, who said Lisa? <laughs> Remember that? <laughs> but he wasn't actually saying Lisa. Was no, he? no. We, we morphed into Lisa because that's one of our sponsors. So, Jay, Jay, I also love the, uh, the sci-fi <laughs> like blaster, phaser, laser weapon sounds you did that time. You did like, what, like four weeks in a row or three weeks, remember? Yes. Yeah, did several, several weeks. That. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Unfortunately, you can only pull that trigger once, you know, Bob? Yeah. La, la, la. <laughs> All right, so guys, if you think you know what this week's noises is, la la, or if you if you just want to say hi or uh, you know send me in a great noisy that you heard, email me at wtn at theskepticsguy.org. Thank you. All right, thanks, Jay. Uh, we're just going to do some corrections from our live show, really quick. We, one email we got from James from California, and James wrote, The Soviet space program sent robots to the moon, collected rocks from the moon, brought them back to Earth before anybody walked there. He's quoting Bill Nye from our live show. And he says, This is incorrect. Apollo 11 made the first successful sample return from another solar system body. Two Soviet missions were planned to do it before Apollo 11, but they both failed. Who is correct, Bill or James? James is right. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I double, triple checked it. So yeah, so the uh, the Luna sixteen or Lunik sixteen was the first uh, Soviet unmanned space mission to return samples from the moon. This was after 
Apollo 11 and 12, uh, and after multiple failed missions. So, so the Apollo missions did do it first, but the Soviet Union was able to return samples from the moon with robots, which is the point that Bill was making. They, were, they did it without people. They did it with just with robots. Uh, but we did, but the Apollo did it first. But the other thing is worth mentioning that the lunar landers returned very little. Uh, the Lunik 16 was 101 grams. Then there was the Luna 20, 30 grams. Luna 24, 170 grams compared to the Apollo mission, which returned oh, hundreds of kilograms, yeah. hundreds wow. of kilograms or hundreds of pounds yeah. of rocks big from, difference. from the surface of the moon. Yeah. Big difference. But yes, it, it, you know, Bill's point is well taken. You know, robots can still do stuff even on their own. Uh, but to be correct, the, the point Apollo did do it first. Also, Evan, you could, you had a lot of feedback on your piece. Mm. Uh, you were talking about the girl Alyssa who, uh, has availed herself of all of the Apollo, all the NASA training programs and all of the visitor centers, et cetera. Yeah. But what, what was the feedback you got on that? Well, that, that, that technically she is not being trained by NASA, that she's not officially part of NASA in, in really any capacity other than the fact that she's taken advantage of being able to do all these things that are available to the public, especially young kids, like participating in these particular space camp programs and visiting the uh, all the centers that they have yeah. around, the, around the country. She And I, I did mention in the show, though, that she would be eligible at age 18 to apply to become a uh, go under the official training of NASA. So there was some correction needed there. Clarification. Yeah. Clarification, I think, but I do think it does bring up a point and we try to be good about this, but it's hard, you know, with unscripted discussion, especially live shows. It's always the pressure is very high, but it's important when reporting science news, I think even something fluffy like this to say, to clarify what you're not saying, right? And to mm -hmm. also clarify how things have been misreported. So even if the details we're giving are technically correct, we don't want to create the wrong impression. We have to keep an eye towards anticipating and sort of pre-correcting any misconceptions. Like, to be clear, I'm not saying that she is an official NASA astronaut or trainee. She's just doing this all on her own. And she hopes to apply next year when she's eligible at age 18, whatever that. So we do and need to be nothing wrong with a little extra clarity, nothing wrong at all. I know, but we could get in an endless loop of clarifying what we're saying. It, it really, you know, sometimes you could, you could literally be endlessly clarifying. Uh, and we have to, we have to cut it off somewhere, but we do try to be aware of that. We do try to do that. We will make corrections when it seems like it's necessary, but, um, that is just a good little tidbit, just a, a, tr a tip on how to report science news correctly. It's as important to say what you're not saying as what Steve, you are saying. Didn't we also get an email from somebody um, saying that she is from like a really small town in she's the from, south? Uh, the, and the one positive email we got was that she's mm -hmm. from Louisiana and it was from somebody who's from Louisiana. And he's, they're mm -hmm. like – don't don't fail to mention that she comes from my home state of Louisiana. Yeah, and that like and yeah. I, and that she's not from like a super big city. So this is yeah. somebody who's kind of maybe has less means or for whatever reason she's not as connected and so yeah. that's like a big accomplishment. And there's some local pride going on there, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. We have a good interview coming up with an Australian skeptic, so let's go to that interview now. Okay. 
Joining us now is Alethea Dean. Alethea, welcome to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, thank you very much for having me. And you're joining us tonight because you are one of the co-conveners of Skepticon 2018, a skeptical conference held in Sydney, Australia. So how is that going? Um, It's quite exciting so far. We um, have almost finalized our lineup of speakers, and it's going to be a really fantastic mix. We're really excited. As I think you guys know from having uh, all of you having been to Sydney, Australia for our various conventions in the past, it's a great city to have it. It's and, a wonderful uh, really city, yeah. It. Yeah. Absolutely. And I went to Skepticon last year, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, yeah. You, were, you were one of our uh, headline speakers and uh, charmed all the guests, including my husband oh those american Stop. accents no, right kara that was so fun skepticon was so fun i have to say there is something really warm about the australian skeptic community um not not that our american community i was gonna say yeah because we're all assholes well, <laughs> we're not all assholes <laughs> but there is uh, a really cool vibe in sydney like, totally it's so welcoming and it's just so fun all right, here's my one complaint, Alethea, and you need to take care of this. <laughs> oh, you need no. to personally handle this before we ever return yes, to Sydney. Yes, I know what you're going to say. The, say it. I uh-huh. want the bats yes. back. Yeah, what happened to the bats? Bring the back bats. the bats. The, oh, like the actual flying foxes? Yes. Bats? The flying yes. foxes, yes. yes. Oh, okay. I will personally see to that. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So what, what happened? You guys easy. got rid of them in Sydney, right? You, you had to get rid of them because they were a hazard, I guess, right? Because they were a tourist attraction? I don't think they were ever a tourist attraction, but uh, I, mean, I don't think oh God, Visit I New so South much. Wales ever fe- ever featured them. But, you know, they they love the um, the fig trees around, um, the native fig trees. And, yeah, at night, you'd well, sunset, you'd often see them rising from uh, yes. from the parks. But, it's amazing. Yeah, you know, you're right. It's, it's not been as dramatic in recent years. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's sad. You can still see them at the like wildlife uh, oh, yeah. reserve places, though. Yeah, yeah. I, for some reason, they don't get as much uh, press as the wallabies and the kangaroos and the cute yeah. things. It was yeah. amazing. Yeah. Cool, they filled the skies every night. It was so amazing. And they're huge. Oh, yeah. They have a six-foot six wingspan for sure. Whoa. We have tiny bats over here. Yeah, that's true. Do you know what my favorite Australian animal is? What is it's your favorite? The, the kangaroo. Oh, it's the quokka. Oh, made, you made that up. smiley one. What, they're what? so cute. What's a quokka? They look, yeah, they're like a cross between, I don't know, a squirrel and a panda. I don't know. They look like they're smiling <laughs> all the time. They're adorable. Oh they're so God, cute. They you guys look them up. They, yeah, they look exactly so like the, uh, what was the animal on uh, Caddyshack? The gopher. 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 It looks like, like the gopher, gopher from Caddyshack for real. But it's like a marsupial gopher. It, it's marsupial almost like a family. mini um, <laughs> wallaby, right? It's like wallaby-esque, but little and cute. But little and cute and smiley. Yeah. And smiley. Do you have any like musical guests or magicians or any sort of f- fun programs going on this year at Skepticon? Uh, so we don't have a musical act this year, but we do have the return of uh, Vayam Sharma, who um, is a medical doctor who also happens to be a practicing magician. Cool. So he was nice. one of our speakers from last year, was amazing, and we're going to have him back on a panel uh, this year. He could make your pancreas disappear? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, we've got him on a medical panel that's headed up by um, 
uh, one of our committee members, uh, Dr. Brad Mackay, who is on Embarrassing Bodies Down Under. It's a show that talks about medical problems uh, people are too embarrassed to go to their doctors about, but they're happy to get their dingons out on TV. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah funny that. <laughs> I love uh, Brad. Uh, yeah, he's great. He was so, in, yeah. I, I definitely met him like a few times when I was down there. And now we follow each other on Twitter. He's always tweeting really great stuff. Yeah, he's hilarious. And yeah, he, it was his idea to do a medical panel called Someone is Wrong on the Internet. <laughs> it's going to give all our medical experts a lot to talk about and a lot to get angry over. I love it. What about Dr. Carl? Is he going to be there this year? Dr. Carl's going to be opening for us. Awesome. He's great. Yep. He's great. He's been one of our um, uh, steadier supporters over the year and is always bringing a lot of quirky energy to the table. So we're really looking forward to having him uh, open things up for us. Alethea, has he ever signed a book over to you? Not yet. I know he's got a ton of books, though, so I really don't have an excuse for not having one of his books on my show. So you, you should ask him because I'm trying to figure out if I'm super special or if he signs all his books the same. Because when I met him when I was at Skepticon, he signed one of his books over to Kara, his best friend in the whole wide world. Wow. <laughs> And I had known him for about five minutes. <laughs> oh. I want to see if he signs yours the same way. I'll, I'll, I'll get. I won't. I won't tell the story, and I'll just. I'll. I'll just get him to sign a book. See how that goes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be hurt? Will you be hurt if I get to be his BFF? No, I won't be hurt. It'll actually probably be a little bit less creepy. No, I shouldn't say creepy, but a little more, a little more normal. But I will say I was like beaming after he wrote that inscription for me. See, not creepy, just a lot of pressure. Seriously. All right. I have a book signed here by Dr. Carl. What does it say? It says, to my new best friend forever. Dang it. Yes. That's his, that's his go-to. So he, well, because we exchanged books because we're going to have him on the show soon. He's like traveling as soon as he gets back. We're going to bring him on the show because he has a book coming out called Carl, the Universe and Everything. I like it. Yep. Yeah, he's prolific. And so, he we're, so many we're so delighted that he's uh, put too. aside the time for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also has really cool shirts. He has the best shirts yeah. in showbiz. And you his can wife always makes tell when, when you're at a science event and there's a. There's a tall, bald man with a very cool shirt on. Yep. That's Dr. Carl. Very cool. So tell us more about who's coming to the conference. We've got, I think, quite a good mix of uh, international and local speakers. We've got um, Cybabe coming over from the States. Uh, yeah, Yvette. Nice. Uh, yeah. We love her. Yeah. And uh, I guess a regular on your podcast, uh, Pamela Gay, is coming mm-hmm. as well. She's going to be speaking yes. with uh, Professor Alan Duffy, who's an astronomer from Australia, and uh, yeah, talking about uh, reaching for the stars. Um, also, an international traveler, we've got Carrie Poppy, who uh, does the Ono Ross and Carrie podcast. Sure. Love her. I love that. Show. Hilarious. Yep. Yeah. I think a good, good inspiration for uh, skeptics who want to kind of see what the other side's all about. Oh, yeah. And uh, also another podcaster, we've got Dr. Alice Howarth from uh, Skeptics with a K, who's uh, coming over from the UK. So um, one of the Merseyside skeptics. And yeah, she's skipping out on QED to be at our com- conference. So it uh, means ours is better, right? Yeah. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Sure. Uh, yeah. And uh, we've also got another panel. So I, I spoke, I think, briefly about our medical panel. And uh, we've also got one that's talking about, I guess, the more classic subjects of of skepticism uh so 
uh, ghosties, cryptids, and yaoi's, oh my. We've got a paranormal investigator on it. We've got documentary maker who's followed yaoi hunters through the bush. And uh, we've got Susan Blackmore who's going to be talking about uh, out-of-body experiences. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, she is such a great awesome, speaker. Yeah. yeah, and also uh, Lynn Kelly, who's an expert on psychics and uh, their cold reading techniques. When it comes to kind of the the topics, the skeptic topics mm-hmm. that we usually cover here in the States, you know, we, we talk a lot about um, pseudoscience, pseudoscience and medicine. And we do still talk about things like psychics and mystics and Bigfoot and these issues because they still crop up from time to time. Is Are these big industries in Australia? I would say they're getting increasingly niche. Okay. Um, I think when when the Australian skeptics first started operating, the idea of, you know, like the UFOs and dowsing, those were hot items, um, both in, in, you know, people people actually practice these things and thought about these things. I would say more and more the woo has moved more into alternative medicine and things like that mm-hmm. with the extraordinary uh, flat earth thing becoming popular for some reason. Oh, but, um, gosh, yeah. <laughs> But the classic stuff is still there and there's still people who are passionately into it. And I think that's um, it's fascinating. It's a fascinating mindset. And it's also, I think, a great return to why a lot of people got into skepticism in the first place. Alethea, is this the first conference you have run? It is. I was uh, volunteered for it. Um, yeah. by Segev, president of the Australian Skeptics. And it's been a big challenge so mm-hmm. far um but also it's a lot of work right quite exciting oh my god yes <laughs> <laughs> i think what he the reason he he asked me and um my fellow convener uh, to take the reins this year was he was worried that with with him doing it would be a lot of um you know stuff he liked and stuff that had been going on before and he wanted to get some fresh eyes on it and i think think something that we've really tried to do is is try and get it a little less male mm-hmm. yeah girl yeah i think i think the the unfortunate thing with a lot of um conventions so far not purposefully but they they tend to be very male-centric and very white so i, I don't know I, I guess a little bit of affirmative action and trying to see um what interesting women speakers that might be available for this and i think for the first time ever we've been able to get a few more women than men on the panel which has actually already got a complaint from from someone who's uh, refusing to come because of the uh, gender disparity yeah right and of course they complained when there was more men than women on the panel right what really wow well, we, that's funny because we did the exact same thing as we t- tapped a friend of ours, actually Bob's girlfriend, Liz, to be our on the committee and to be the head of our speaker committee. And it's like, yeah, go ahead. You know, let's let's really increase the diversity of Nexus. And it, and it worked and it came off great. It was a really great conference. Mm-hmm. It does. It gets a lot of fresh blood and new topics and everything into the into the skeptical conference. So I think it's a it is a good idea. And it's not just affirmative action. It's just. You know, it is the all about fresh blood and just not, you know, having the same people giving the same talks over and over again, you know? Yeah, because um, unfortunately, the, the way it feeds into itself is you want to have high profile speakers, but the ones that have a high profile are people that have spoken before that tend to be that tend to be men. So, yeah, you have to kind of like force to to 
force it a bit to get women a platform. But, you know, these are fantastic speakers with really yeah. interesting backgrounds and a lot to say. So I'm, I think it's going to be a fantastic conference. I'm really excited to hear what um, Sue Knight has to say. She's she's built uh, one of the uh, philosophy for young people programs in the country. So rather than going into class and listen to uh, religious chaplains talk about um, how you need God to be moral. She's built in a fantastic ethical program for uh, that that's built around secular ethics. And, you know, we're going to have also Kirsten Banks, who's a young um, astronomer who's interested in Aboriginal astronomy. So these are people who haven't had a huge platform within our community before, but I think they're going to be very exciting. Yeah, it sounds great. So, uh, Alitha, give us the dates and how people can get tickets and what's going on. Uh, it's going to take place in October this year on uh, Saturday the t- 13th and Sunday the 14th. And uh, tickets are available from the Australian Skeptics uh, website. And for more information about the conference, people can go to convention.skeptics.com.au and you can see our, uh, our list of speakers, the convention venue in Chatswood. If they have any questions, email us. We also have a phone number there. You can bother. You can bother our uh, <laughs> our executive officer about it. So good luck with everything, Alethea. It sounds like it's going to be a great conference. Thank you so much, Steve, and thank you for uh, letting us talk about it on your show. Sure, no I problem. I want to go. Let's just or, go. No worries, I should say. Send us coffee. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> no worries, mate. We want the, we want the Australian coffee in the United States. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Flat white, please. (laughs) Oh, yes. I remember that. Thank you guys so much. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real, one fake. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have three interesting news items News items this week, no theme. You'll be happy to know. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. I do have to point out that I swept you during the live show with facts that I took from our book. That was so brutal. That sucked. All right. Shows you how much meat there is, how deep, how specific that is. Okay. Here we go. Official we are. Item number one. Astronomers find the rust-colored dust that covers Mars originates from one large geological structure at the equator. Item number two, a new study finds that eradication of malaria-carrying mosquitoes in endemic regions could cause significant disruption to the local ecosystem. And item number three, engineers have created a, a transistor based on excitons rather than electrons, opening the door to a new technology of excitronics. Evan, go first. The rust-colored dust that covers Mars originates from one large geological structure at the equator. Yeah, it's called the Rust Belt. It's made of metal, (laughs) and it gets all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) This is amazing. Really, totally new information to me. Never heard of anything like this before. I don't even know what to do with it. Boy, that's a large structure indeed to cover an entire planet with the stuff. But it's been around for a long time, so it's only really a factor of time more than size. Uh, maybe. Mm, the next one. The new study finds that eradication of malaria-carrying mosquitoes in endemic regions could cause significant disruption to the local ecosystem. Well, uh, that doesn't sound crazy. 
they carry malaria, but they must do other things as well, like, I don't know, pollination and some other things. So if you're going to get rid of the mosquitoes, you're getting rid of other things along with it. That's kind of makes sense. The last one, oh boy, a transistor based on excite, excitons? Excitons. Jeez. Oh, Rather than electrons. What the hell is an exciton? Opening the door to a new technology of excitronics. All right. That one has to be science because that is just beyond out there crazy. Oh, my gosh. I don't even know what to make of that one. Uh, that's got to be science because I have no idea what's going on there. All right, mosquitoes or Mars. Uh, got to put my chip down on one of these two. They're kind of equal in my head. I'm going to say uh, the mosquitoes one because I really want this one to be the fiction because – Damn it, let's get rid of these malaria-carrying mosquitoes once and for all. Breed them out. Thank you. Okay, Kara, done. I, I thought that it was the mosquito one from the time you read them, um, mostly because my knowledge about Mars and excitons is limited to nil. But from what I understand about mosquitoes, they obviously do have some pollination and some ecological purposes, but there's also so many species of mosquitoes in existence, and only a fraction of them actually carry malaria. So I do think that if we use some sort of gene drive to eradicate simply the malaria-carrying mosquitoes, we would still have enough um, species available within most regions, endemic species available within most regions, to carry out the ecological purposes that they do. So I am, I mean, I could be wrong about that. It may be that there are places where there are fewer species available than, than I think. But from what I've gathered, um, from what I understand, at least about my studies of malaria and talking to people about the eradication efforts, I think it's, it's probably okay to eradicate them using gene drives. Um, there may be some unintended consequences, but I think that aspect through the um, modeling is probably okay. So I'm going to say that that's the fiction. Uh, Jay? The one about the uh, the rust coming from a single place on Mars. I mean, I, I could see that it has to be coming from somewhere. You know, the regolith is is definitely. Um, I guess it's iron. It has a lot of iron in it. I mean, is you it would called think regolith on on Mars. Yeah, why not? I think so. Yeah, it's oh, still it's regolith on Mars. Specific. Yeah. Right. No, it's not moon specific. It's not moon no. specific. No. You know, the question here is: Is it coming from one place, or is it coming from like you know hundreds or thousands of places? So okay. I, I could see that maybe there's one huge area and it, you know, there are, you know, the dust storms would spread that stuff around pretty easy if it was coming from one place. So I could see that. Yeah. And, and piggybacking on what Kara was saying about the mosquitoes, I agree. And I also think Kara that, um, you know, if they got rid of this one strain or even, you know, a whole bunch of strains that could transmit malaria, that the other ones would very quickly fill that hole, right? Because mosquitoes, their population can explode depending on how much uh, surface water there is and all that stuff. So I would imagine that if they did kill out a bunch, that there would be a whole second, you know, whole new wave or batch of others that are just filling whatever gap that they leave. So I could see that one as being the fiction. And then this last one, they created a transistor that's based on uh, excitons rather than electrons. Yeah, I mean, this one to me, now I know Steve, and I know Steve likes words that he's He's like, you know, would they know what that word means and all that? And because I can't really argue it, but I can argue the second one, I'm going to say the second one, the, mo- the mosquitoes is the fiction. And Bob? Yeah, for Mars, I could – it seems odd, but I could definitely see that, especially with the, the global the global winds that could distribute uh, this kind of uh, 
this kind of stuff throughout the entire planet. So it, it, I definitely, there's the mechanisms there. I'm not familiar with any such a singular, uh, geological structure that could do that. But, um, I'm a little skeptical of this, but, uh, I think it's, it's feasible for sure. Uh, the malaria one. Yeah. If you wiped out all the mosquitoes, which is kind of where, where this news item, you know, what Steve wants us to think, then yeah, that would probably clearly be really bad. Um, uh, but then again, I'm not sure exactly what, um, the role the mosquitoes play in the, in the, in the ecosystem. I could see, I could see the damage being less than you would think, but I don't know. I think the bats would be kind of pissed off. Let me go to three here. The excitons. Yeah, I've heard of them. It's basically just like a mobile unit of energy, kind of like a, an electron in, in a way. So I could see that you could base some sort of electronics on excitons, and that's really fascinating. But I, I mean, I didn't read anything about this. But uh, I mean, the excitons aren't fake for sure. But basing a new industry on on that would be interesting. So that's that, that's kind of feasible as well. Yeah. So um, Kara makes a lot of sense here with the mosquitoes. Yeah, it, it makes sense that it, it would be a small fraction. And if you, the way we could target things now, um, I think that that makes the most sense. So so this one uh, seems like fiction as well. So you guys are all in agreement. So let's take these in order. Astronomers find the rust-colored dust that covers Mars originates from one large geological structure at the equator. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Oh, boy, man. Oh, wow. Damn. That's yeah. cool. It's crazy. Really interesting. Is this new? Yeah. Is this a new one? Yeah. New discovery? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah. yeah, so the the structure, Medusae fossae, Ooh, I like. is about a thousand kilometers across, so it's big, but it's big. at the equator. And they think that this eroding away is basically spreading its rust-colored dust all around the planet. And that Mars is red because of this one structure. Uh, this That's is based awesome. upon – yeah, this is based, based upon ana- analyzed data collected from Spirit and Opportunity, two of the rovers – Showing that the chemical, there's a chemical match, basically. This is not originating from different sources or all over Mars, that probably they all have a very common source. And that source matches, yeah. Common signature. I mean, couldn't there be a similar structure on the other side of the planet that's just been eroded away and you can't really see evidence of it anymore? Wouldn't that have a, a, you know, the, the same chemical signature? I mean, it's iron. You know. It's not no because it's also sulfur and chlorine. Is multiple things. Obviously, it's got to be the ratios have to exactly match. So it's kind of be like a fingerprint then, aren't? Right. Yes, yes, that makes exactly. more sense. Yeah, it's a chemical signature. It's not just like oh, well, it's rust. You know, no, obviously there's there's multiple things and, and enough that you can identify that it's probably all coming from the same source. Fascinating. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, wasn't Mars completely? And entirely enshrouded, like a couple weeks ago. Yeah, there are dust storms. The yeah, horrible. The, yeah, the, the entire damn world. <laughs> Yeah, Didn't the entire lose- planet's covered in a single dust storm. So, yeah, that makes sense. Didn't we I, lose power to a rover in that? Dusty. Yeah, usually because it blocks out the sun. Yeah. I, but, like, didn't one go offline? We're oh, not going to be able to get it back? Yeah, I'm sure. That, that, that I think there was cons- all of them eventually. concern about that, yeah. Oh, because of the dust storm specifically? So, reading the original article, it says that in sight to investigations from past and current rovers have revealed the dust to be consistently and markedly enriched with both both sulfur and chlorine relative to the average Martian soil. So in other words, mm. it has a different chemical signature than the soil all around Mars, indicating that it, it has a single source. It goes into a lot more technical detail. I'm just giving you one highlight. That's cool. All right, let's go on to number two. A new study finds that eradication of malaria-carrying mosquitoes in endemic regions could cause significant disruption to the local ecosystem. You guys all think this one is the fiction 
And yeah. this one is the fiction. Is. Good job, yes. guys. Uh, yes, we reversed our sweep. You did. Did any of you read this? <laughs> no. No. Nope. Um, no, but I did interview somebody on my podcast recently who specializes in mosquito net technology. <laughs> and we talked a lot. She's a, she's a, a, a she, she's an entomologist. So we talked a lot about mosquitoes. This is, this is a net there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, different species of mosquito. Obviously, this study was based not on the pollinating activity of mosquitoes, and many people might be surprised to find that mosquitoes can be pollinators. I don't necessarily think they all are pollinators. There are some species of mosquitoes which are. Um, and some and mosquitoes are also opportunistic. Like, yeah, they'll even if they prefer a blood meal, if they if they're having a dry spell, they will eat sucrose. You know, they will mm-hmm. go after other sources. Um, or like only the breeding females eat blood and then at other times mm-hmm. they may pollinate, whatever. But I, I couldn't find specifically if um, Anopheles gambii, which is the species mm-hmm. that spreads malaria, if they pollinate, I don't think so. But this study was based upon them as food. The notion being the concern was if we wipe them out, is anyone else going to go extinct because we're taking away their food supply? Yeah. Uh, and what they, what they found was that there is essentially no species that they could find that relies heavily let alone entirely on this one species on Anopheles. Oh, that's good. Uh, and that they have they have plenty of alternate m- mosquito food sources or larval based food sources that uh, it wouldn't have it would basically not have any significant impact on the ecosystem. Also, these mosquitoes off with their heads. Yeah, they're they're good at hiding. You know uh-huh. that they they breed in small pool temporary pools uh, most of the time, not all the time, but. And they, they come out a lot at night and, you know, they're just very good at not being eaten. So that they're not, they're not an important food source in the ecosystem. So they basically concluded, yep, we could wipe them out and not have to worry about any significant ecological effect, which is good. Awesome. Good. Very good. We should, we should, uh, eradicate them. All right. All this means that engineers have created a transistor based on excitons. Rather than electrons, opening the door to a new technology of excitronics. Bob, <laughs> uh, did you hear about this one? Did not. Did not hear about it. Do you do, do you know about excitons and excitronics? I know about. I know what excitons are, but I haven't heard much about excitronics. So tell right, me. Let, tell let me. me give you my understanding of what an exciton is, and you could tell me if this was your understanding. So, because obviously we're trying to just approximate physicists who actually know what these things are. So. An exciton is a quasi-particle. It's not an actual yeah, particle. Quasi. It's a particle-like quasi-particle. Like a, a phonon is similar. Yeah. So it's created when an electron absorbs a photon, and then the electron gets bumped into a higher energy state, and the hole, the metaphorical hole that it leaves behind in its previous energy state, energy state is this quasi-particle that it uh, – combines with the electron and the two things together, like the electron and the hole it leaves behind, is the exciton. So you huh. could kind of think of it like an excited electron, but they talk about yeah, it as being yeah, this combination of the electron and the hole that it left behind, at least in the article that I'm reading. That's the metaphor they're using. So to, it's the combination, really. It's okay, the combination. And then when the the electron gives off uh, the photon, it falls back into its hole, its lower energy state. 
and then the exciton goes away. It, van- it ceases, to, ceases to exist. So, but I guess you could, in, in more simplistic terms, you could think of it as an excited electron. But it is this sort of transient quasi-particle, and they were able essentially to create a transistor where excitons are the the energy carrier, the information carrier. And so they're saying this creates How do they the maintain pos- that state. Yeah, well, that's the thing. They were able to normally. So we've known about these for a while, but they only existed very low temperature temperatures and very transiently, and they were able to find materials that will allow it to exist at room temperature for a long time. And so uh, that is, that was the breakthrough. So what's uh, the so, benefit of an exciton over uh, just an electron? Uh, basically, they said you could make electronics that use a lot less energy and are a lot faster. Okay. That sounds good to me. Yeah, it sounds good. I mean, this is all obviously theoretical, but they made they made a transistor apparently. So they used 2D materials. They used tungsten diselenide and molybdenum disulfide. Ooh, molybdenum. Yeah, molybdenum. Molybdenum. Right. <laughs> so they said the excitons in these materials exhibit a particularly strong electrostatic bond, and even more importantly, they are not quickly destroyed at room temperature. It's the, but is that name really going to catch on? Who the hell knows? It'll catch on like in academic circles, but if it actually does become involved in our m- regular technology, we're just going to call them electronics still. Well, I don't know. I, I admit that excitronics does not roll off the tongue. It's no. Really and to electronics – I. I bet you if you went out on the street, Jimmy Kimmel style, and surveyed a hundred people and asked them about the electron, like if you figured out a way to ask them where you were trying to ask for the answer electron when you were talking about electron, they wouldn't know that those two things are related. Yeah. Probably only like five, ten percent of the population. Yeah. So I, I don't think it'll catch on, but it is still cool. Excitronics. Excitronics. Yeah. <laughs> They'll come up with some marketable, cooler name for it. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. All right, Evan, give us a quote. We all want so badly to believe in miracles. That's what makes us so vulnerable. And that's what makes the self-help movement so rich. And that was written by Steve Salerno, who's the author of the book Sham, How the Self-Help Movement Made America Helpless. Who we've had on the show. And we've had him on the show, I think, a a couple of times. And he's... uh, He's quite an expert in this uh, particular yeah, field. Did a lot of research in it. All right, guys. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Sure, you man. got it, brother. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 